What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with the Washington Post. I am joined by Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated on the other line. Rob, how are you doing? We're still neck deep, I think, in this China controversy. We probably have to double back on the latest and not so greatest developments uh, from overseas. But how are you, my friend? I'm doing all right. You know, we're in the process of closing our season preview magazine right now, so I feel like I've been kind of in and out of a fugue state. It makes it great to hear your voice ground me in reality a little bit. Oh, I'm sure that this week's events haven't thrown a kink at all in months of planning for (laughs) the SI Preview magazine. Yeah, so did you get to talk to the scouts this year? Did you get any good hot takes from the scouts that you want to tease here on the episode about, you know, which players are overrated bums and who gets injured all the time and uh, who we should look for breakouts or anything like that? Ben, some anonymous members of our staff spoke to some anonymous scouts. I'm not going to out anyone on either side. I don't want anyone combing phone records. We have to protect all of our sources. Wow, look at you. Look at you. Good company, man. I like to hear that. All right, well, we're going to dive right in and You know, I'm just going to keep it real, Rob. I came up with some hot take questions for you about this whole China thing because I have been doing nothing but talking about this China experience on various media platforms for the last three or four days straight. And there's been a bunch of questions that I wish the hosts had asked me that no one has asked because, look, frankly, they're just too ridiculous, right? So the good news is I'm going to ask you, uh, we're going to see where you stand on them, and then maybe I'm going to get a few takes off here as we go. Uh, First things first, just to recap, though. The biggest development from the last three days is after, you know, the Chinese government and business leaders taking this very, very hard stand, basically trying to demand an apology from Adam Silver for Daryl Morey's comments, uh, an apology that, you know, never formally came. They decided to play the game on Thursday between the Brooklyn Nets and the Los Angeles Lakers in Shanghai. Um, rather than canceling it. Now, they had canceled some other minor events, some press availabilities, I think upcoming G League games and so forth, but the game did go on. Um, you know, it was televised, you know, back in the States, people were able to watch it. However, there was one hitch. Uh, they didn't have any media availability before the game or after the game. Nobody spoke, no players, no coaches. As far as I can remember going back to when I first started covering this league in 2007, I have never heard of that happening before. So that's a pretty extraordinary uh, development. Now, the other thing that happened is the New York Times reported, uh, I believe Thursday, that the Chinese government is indicating to you know reporters and media outlets in China to kind of chill out a little bit, uh, to you know turn it down from 11, maybe down to like five or six uh, against the NBA. And they're not targeting the NBA quite as uh, thoroughly and as heavily as they were earlier this week. That could be a sign that this entire affair is starting to transition maybe into a more uh, mutually beneficial state. So that's where things stand. Now, Rob, here's my first question, and it might feel a little bit random, right? But here it comes. If you were James Harden, face of the Houston Rockets, you know, MVP, MVP runner up, uh, you know, big time sneaker endorsement guy for Adidas. What is going through your mind as this whole thing played out? Of course, Harden has apologized publicly. Uh, He took some backlash for that. Um, But considering everything that's happened here, not only just over the last week or so, but this summer with Daryl Morey trading for uh, Russell Westbrook, you know, his close childhood friend trading away, Chris Paul, a guy that James Harden didn't get along with. um, Where do you think James Harden's mind is at uh, with respect to Morey? With respect to Houston Rockets ownership, uh, who did try to distance themselves from Maury a little bit, like what would be your take if you're James Harden? Just generally the state of the affairs uh, as we know them right now. I mean, I think James is probably pretty happy with where the Rockets are, with the job Maury has done this summer. As you mentioned, the moves that Maury has done have largely really benefited and come in service of what James has wanted. You know, trading for Chris Paul in the first place, something that James wanted. Trading for Russell Westbrook, obviously something James pushed for and lobbied for on both sides, getting, you know, Russell involved and on board and, and really selling the Rockets on it, too. Other than that, I feel like it's probably just an inconvenience. This is, you know, guys trying to go about their business for the season, get ready for it, do their jobs, and now all of a sudden they have all this other stuff to contend with. They have, you know, these press conferences where they could step, really step in it at any given moment, and the stakes are so high, I feel like, league-wide, and now that this has become not just a sports media issue, but a broader media issue, you know, there, there really is a lot of scrutiny on every word right now. And so if you're James Harden, I'm sure... 
you know, you're feeling a little put out that this happened in the way that it did, just in the sense that this was supposed to be basically a victory lap, a a publicity tour for the NBA, going overseas, promoting the product, you know, showing out for their international fans. And now it's become this whole other thing altogether that, as you mentioned, you know, this is a big spokesperson for Adidas. I'm sure next time that Adidas wants James to go to China or go over to Asia, it's now a more complicated conversation, a more complicated question. And that's, I think that's where the annoyance and the inconvenience comes in for guys like that more than anything, not to just, uh, to downplay kind of the seriousness of the protests and the issues fundamental to this, but from an NBA player perspective, I feel like they're probably just a little put out by it. Yeah, so a couple other things that Maury has done to build up goodwill with James Harden. I mean, he has given him multiple super max extensions, right? Like gigantic contracts that are paying him, uh, you know, upwards of 20 to 30 and soon $40 million per year and establishing him as the franchise guy. And on top of that, he's been Harden's, I think, most ardent and most vocal defender through everything, through, uh, you know, the playoff struggles. Uh, And look, I know this firsthand because I've been trying to defend James Harden for years. It's not easy. You take a lot of grief. And I do think that Maury stepping up and being that guy who's, uh, you know, put himself into MVP debates on behalf of James and everything else. You know, I'm sure that has accrued a lot of goodwill from James. But yesterday I was talking to a championship winning former athlete, very high profile here in Los Angeles. I'm not going to name him. But I said, look, if you're James Harden, what's going through your mind? And he said, you know what? The first thing I would do here is call my agent and say, this man over here, Daryl Morey, is not just a distraction, okay? he's He is costing me money. He is making my life more difficult. And he said he would go to Tillman Fertitta, the owner, and it wouldn't be an ultimatum. It wouldn't be like, look, fire Morey or have Maury resign, or I want you to trade me so that I can kind of get away from the situation because I didn't ask for it. I don't want any part of it. And it's, you know, screwing me over uh, basically with my off-court, you know, deals and endorsements and all that. Um, But the message to the ownership, he said that he would want delivered either from his agent or directly would just be like, look, man, you've got to handle this. Like you, you need to make a statement here. I understand that it's sensitive to fire him uh, with the Chinese, you know, government breathing down his neck. I understand that you want to uh, stand up for, uh, you know, freedom of expression, like Adam Silver has said, and all of that. But there are real implications for the Houston Rockets seasons here. I mean, this kind of a thing is going to most likely hang over their season for months. They're trying to come together as a group. They're trying to mesh uh, with a guy like Russell Westbrook. Uh, you know, big time new piece. They've already got Mike D'Antoni on the hot seat. They've already got people questioning whether Tillman Fertitta is up for the task as a stable ownership uh, you know, piece uh, after taking over from a guy like Leslie Alexander, who was very, very well-respected and well-regarded for decades uh, when he was owner of the Houston Rockets. And so he uh, he's basically you know kind of putting forth this idea that Harden has some legitimate beefs here with Daryl Morey. And he was also saying, look, Morey, even though he's a very good executive, he's a lot more expendable than most people realize within that organization. If he goes, you can find somebody to do 75% of the job that he was doing, um, especially when you've already got an MVP caliber player in place. So he wasn't suggesting that you know, he was speaking on behalf of James. This is just this uh, you know former athlete's own perspective. But what he was saying is that uh, a high-profile athlete like Harden, you know, he's probably got a fairly short amount of patience for the way this situation kind of blew up in his face. I thought that was just an interesting perspective. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I just think that if there, if that is what James was thinking and what he wanted, there would be more heat on Daryl now than there seems to be. You know, I think that's the kind of thing where if, if your star player is feeling that kind of way about pretty much any member of your organization short of ownership, and sometimes even if it's a minority owner or something like that, you have to take it incredibly seriously. Players like James are that valuable. But I just don't, I don't, I don't get the impression that that's the case in this instance. And I don't, I don't really get the impression that it's that justified. And I, I think that the point would be valid in the sense that very few people in the NBA in general are, you know, are completely irreplaceable. And, and, and you know, Daryl Morey's in that camp where he does, you know, he does a very good job, but you could put another executive in his place and maybe they could do a good job too. But the Rockets have been so close to a title. And when you're talking about those like very slight degrees of difference, you know, missing a couple threes in the in the Western Conference Finals two years ago, or Chris Paul's hamstring, then whatever happened this last year, and kind of 
how close some of those games were against the Warriors and, you know, Kevin Durant's injury, and maybe they could have taken advantage of that but didn't. When you're talking about those very small degrees of difference, I don't know that this is the time to go from, oh, Daryl Moore is doing 100% of his job to, oh, let's let's try to find a guy who can do 75% of it. No, no, I hear you. I also think that just from the player's perspective, though, when you're looking at what Daryl Morey has done here, I mean, potentially costing the league millions, if not tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. There's reports that some teams, I believe it was Keith Smith from Yahoo Sports reported that some teams were preparing for the possibility that salary cap would drop by as much as 15% as part of the fallout from this. Now, we'll see if that sticks, but you know, you're just seeing early movement by teams to at least think about that type of financial impact. And you've got players who are getting suspended for two years for testing positive for, you know, drugs that, you know, in some cases aren't necessarily like, you know, super hardcore drugs, right? So they're having their livelihood taken away for multiple years for, you know, something that's happening basically, you know, between them uh, and their trainer or sometimes just, you know, between them themselves. Now you've got another situation here where you've got an MBA employee who was in his right to say what he said. Uh, you know, I don't think the timing uh, was very, uh, you know, advantageous. And I certainly don't think he put enough thought into the action uh, of putting it out there. But now you've got someone doing that kind of harm to his own organization directly, and also to the league as a whole. I could see if I was from the player's standpoint, saying, wait a minute, how come we're getting punished? You know, we get in trouble if we fail drug tests, and it goes out as this huge press release, and we're getting scolded. And this guy over here is costing the league Hundred million, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, and he's getting away scot free. I could understand why they would view that uh, as a double standard. Well, I don't think Daryl Moore is getting the Players Association Christmas card, if that's what you're saying. <laughs> that's exactly what I'm saying. I, I think that kind of matters here, though. And I'm not saying putting all of this on hardened shoulders, right? I just think that we need to think about the internal ramifications of this uh, episode as opposed to just focusing on, okay, what is the NBA and China's relationship going to be like going forward, right? Like, isn't Maury in an awfully weird, precarious spot here going forward? Like, if you're other executives and he's calling you and like, you know, trying to execute trades in February, you know, aren't you bringing this up? Like, aren't you saying, come on, bro, why, why you, why'd you do this? Why are you costing a salary cap space? I mean, isn't this going to kind of hang over him, don't you think? Because, for years, his reputation was, hey, he's the NBA quant, right? He's bringing Moneyball to the NBA. And I feel like when we're writing his, you know, quote unquote, career obituary, this has become the first sentence, hasn't it? I don't know about that. I mean, now that you mention it, though, this feels like maybe a four-dimensional chess move where, you know, Daryl Moore and the Rockets already have two of the most expensive players in the league on their roster and James Harden and Russell Westbrook. They're already pretty much capped out. What's the harm in maybe bringing the salary cap down another five or ten million dollars for everyone else at this point? Well, that would be funny if he actually increased his own luxury tax bill by doing <laughs> this, and, and that's what wound up getting him fired because Tillman Fertitta has been a little bit careful about wanting to pay the luxury tax of the past. Hey, this is completely random, um, but I've actually spent way too much time over the last twenty-four hours thinking about this. If I gave you one million dollars. And your task for to earn that one million was to construct a tweet that could cost your employer or a random business, uh, you know, in the American economy, hundreds of millions of dollars. Do you think you could do it? Because it's very easy to construct a tweet that will get you fired. Any, you know, any idiot can do that. Part of my language, but any moron can write a tweet that will get you fired. But to actually put out a tweet that can do that level of economic damage to your company is pretty difficult when you think about it. I'm not totally sold that I would be able to do it. What about you? I do think there's an art to it. And that line between what can you do to get fired and what can you do to cause like an actual financial crisis for the company you work for, it's it's a pretty big distinction. I think it would be really hard. I think it'd be much more difficult than people would think. I mean, it's like it has to involve like either China or North Korea, or maybe Turkey, or the Saudis. Like it's a short list of topics that could get you in that level of trouble to, uh, you know, bring down that kind of, uh, you know, crazy financial, I guess, anti-windfall or whatever you want to call it. All right. Uh, on a more serious topic, were you surprised that the NBA uh, was able to go ahead with this Lakers-Nets game, even kind of in the modified form that I described? Uh, you know, I don't know if you want to say China blinked here. But they were taking a very, very hard line 
you know, taking down all those posters in Shanghai, uh, you know, canceling some of these other events, not letting people be available. But the game did go on. Uh, LeBron James did take the court. Uh, what do you make of that? I, w- I was very surprised. I was surprised that NBA teams stayed in China altogether after the way things blew up. Because at some point, this starts to become a bigger issue, maybe even a security issue, depending on how things pan out. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure the NBA was thorough in its investigation of that part of things. But I'm, I'm a little surprised that the game went on just because the people who are going to show up for that game, you don't need to sell them. Those people are already very clearly serious NBA fans. And while it's nice to, to put a game in front of them in Shanghai, I'm, I'm not sure that that kind of olive branch does you a ton of good right now, especially at a time when I think everyone just not, needed to kind of step back and regroup. Would you have just called it off and, and brought everybody home? I know there were some lawmakers. I believe AOC was involved. I believe Ted Cruz might have been involved again, who were basically saying, hey, NBA, you know, step up here and come home, you know, leave China hanging, you know, fight fire with fire. Uh, would that have been your approach? I think so. Ooh, why? I just, again, I just don't think there's a lot of good to come out of that right now. I think you need to put some distance between all the parties involved and the way that this kind of lit in the incendiary way that it did. Uh, Let some cooler heads prevail. Let everyone go back to their corners and count their money and realize what's at stake if this partnership doesn't go through the way they want it to or if the NBA kind of grows its conscience a little bit and decides that it doesn't want to partake in this or, you know, have that kind of relationship with China. That's great, too. But I think that everyone needs to kind of reconsider where they're coming from in a more, you know, from a more balanced place. I think my preference would have been to have the game go on like normal. If that wasn't possible, then I think my second preference would be what you're saying, which is just take your ball and go home. You know, sorry, this was a huge mess. We stepped in it. We're out. I, I What I would not have done is what the NBA did. And I'll be honest, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit frustrated, a little bit uh, ticked off at, at what happened in terms of how they handled the media side of this, because you know, as NBA reporters, we go through a lot of dog and pony shows, right? We go through a lot of like forced interviews, you know, one word answers, no comments. They're kind of up there because they feel they have to. In some cases, guys will duck out after, you know, poor performances and not take questions. Usually they make it up the next day. And um, so everybody just, you know, kind of calls that, you know, even or, or calls that good. To me, Having a game where you've got media members going all the way across the world to cover it and allowing no media access is really unacceptable from the NBA's behalf. And I'm sure they were feeling a lot of pressure from China to you know have that be one of the conditions for this game to go on. And I think, unfortunately, you know that's it's really unacceptable. I mean, for Adam Silver, a guy who has been trying to be a media-friendly executive for years and years, and I think in some cases he actually has been, uh, to leave the media hanging in this situation. To me, that's where the hypocrisy comes from because he's willing to stand up for Daryl Morey's freedom of expression. He is not willing to stand up for the American media's uh, you know, f- freedom of the press. And to me, that is really unfortunate. And I think you know, tough times reveal character, right? I believe in that truism. I, I really do. Um, Adam Silver, I thought, proved himself to be a pretty good boss this week. He did not you know, leave Daryl Morey out to dry. He did not fire him. He did not uh, sacrifice him to the wolves, whatever, you know, phrase you want to use. However, he really let the media down in this situation. There needed to be something. You can't just call it off and say, oh, the, the Chinese totalitarian or authoritarian government, whatever phrase you want to use, says no media. So therefore, we're going along with no media. That's not cool. And I'll be honest, this changes how I look at Adam Silver going forward. You know, I think that he is enjoyed a very nice honeymoon period for most of his, uh, you know, time as commissioner. And this kind of ended it for me. You know, I don't see any way to really justify having major stars, you know, prestigious big market franchises over there and just having them conduct the whole thing in a media blackout. To me, that really rubs me the wrong way. I got to be honest, this is one I have a hard time getting particularly worked up about. Uh, in part because this is not a, a freedom of the press issue. You know, like if, if we want to send an interview request to LeBron to come for an exclusive interview on open floor and he turns us down, like access is elective. Like he doesn't have to do that. That's not a First Amendment problem. And so I think the league does have these policies and, you know, they've been carefully negotiated 
in terms of what the media access is going to be at various points. And there are obviously rules that govern these things, and they should abide by those rules. Totally in agreement there. Is it a huge deal that they didn't have media access? I just have a hard time drumming that up when the, the journalists that were present still get to write whatever they want. They still have their freedom of the press. And if anything, like the story turned out to be huge, bigger than any preseason game the NBA would host in China would otherwise be. So it's not like the people who went over there, and maybe they would feel differently or tell you differently, I can't speak for them, but they certainly got big stories out of going. It's not like their trip was useless. I do think maybe those stories would have been better if they had a quote from LeBron James in them, but as it stands, it's not like that from a media standpoint, this was an empty trip. Well, look, it's not about necessarily the practical like ABCs of their stories. It's the symbolic you know, nature of it. Like people are hammering the NBA for putting their money first. You know, they're hammering them for not standing up for, you know, American values, not standing up for the protesters. I think a lot of those criticisms criticisms are warranted. But I think here again, uh, the whole question is going forward, what's this NBA China relationship going to look like? And I think it sets a pretty dangerous precedent. If you're willing to do it once, now isn't the NBA willing to do this every single time? If ne- the next time they go to China, what is the expectation going to be from the Chinese side about media? You know, are American media even going to be allowed, allowed to go? And I know, I mean, this was a real issue for some of the reporters who were covering the FIBA World Cup. They had a heck of a time getting the appropriate paperwork to get actually get over there to cover things in China. I mean, China you know, did not necessarily make it easy for American journalists to do that. I think it's serious deep waters, man. I really do. And I, I wish the NBA hadn't done that. And now I wonder, you know, what's their standard going to be like going forward? I, I This is one where I wish Adam Silver, once everyone's back from China next week, I hope he doubles back on this because there was an incident, uh, I, I believe it was with the Rockets, where a reporter from CNN was trying to ask James Harden and Russell Westbrook a question. And a team employee stepped in and said, hey, look, basketball questions only. You can't ask anything about uh, politics. And, you know, the reporter was very frustrated by that, did not get an answer. The press conference moved on. The NBA actually apologized to the reporter, reached out to her and said, hey, look, you know, that was, uh, you know, not intended by us to sort of squelch your, your ability to have access there. I thought that was a good move, but it also just shined the light on everything else that happened in China. And by the way, and this is a side thing, I think if you're a basketball fan and an observer, you need to pay careful attention to which media outlets did not cover this story, right? Who went along quietly, who did not, you know, do any reporting on Daryl Morey, any reporting on China. There are some major media outlets out there that basically went dark. And to me, Rob, that's scary too. Right. Because now where is this going to go if we have, you know, future conflicts, you know, potentially, you know, between America and China, the NBA and China, how much silence is there going to be? Is there enough uh, independent media out there who aren't financially compromised, who are willing to do the reporting and and willing to speak the truth here? Uh, That stuff has me nervous. Well, I do think you raise some great points in terms of the seriousness of limiting coverage and travel and things like that. Like that's obviously the big takeaway from a media perspective and what this relationship is going to look like going forward. Um, I understand why the NBA would want to limit kind of its its points of exposure in a sense in terms of what players are, are opened up to and kind of their liability in terms of saying the wrong thing. And, and trying to shut that down or limit it in, in some capacity. Although, obviously, as you mentioned, the NBA kind of backtracked on some of that, which I think is the right thing to do. But I understand the initial impulse. That said, this is really kind of the one arena that has that kind of explosive capacity is China. Like, you anger any other market in the world, even if it's inside the United States, you don't run the same risk of just shutting off that giant revenue stream. So this, I think it really is a pretty singular issue in in the NBA circles and in basketball circles, which isn't to say it won't come up again because it will, but it does kind of put it off in its own corner, I think, in terms of how the NBA wants to and will deal with it. Uh, No, I hear you. I'm just saying, look, shots have been fired here, okay? If there is another situation where the NBA is saying, we're not new in media, sorry, you can't talk to anyone, they deserve heat for that, and I hope it never happens again. It's the only time I can remember since 2007 that it's happened. Uh, I really hope it's the last. I felt terrible for the reporters who were over there. I I know there's a lot of people in the NBA league office who get it from a media perspective. I'm sure some of them are thinking, 
well, you know, pragmatically, we don't want to make the situation worse. But at the same time, we have values about how we want to treat the media. And I just don't think the NBA lived up to its own values on that one. I think they were pressured into taking a stance that they normally wouldn't have taken. To me, that's frustrating and unfortunate. Hey, one other thing on this, uh, you know, this media conversation, uh, the fallout, uh, has been around Steve Kerr and Greg Popovich. Now, both those guys got name-checked by President Trump on Wednesday, uh, who was basically, you know, calling them hypocrites, saying, hey, look, they'll speak up and, uh, you know, crush President Trump, but you know, they're not willing to speak up and say anything about China. Um, now, that led a lot of people to criticize those coaches and saying, oh, they're being selective in what issues they, uh, you know, are, are willing to talk about. Was that criticism to you warranted uh, of Steve Kerr and Greg Popovich, who basically kind of sidestepped this issue and chose not to, you know, add fuel to the fire uh, while other teams uh, were over there in China? I don't think it's a particularly valid criticism because I don't think any human being should be an advocate for all issues. It's just impossible. And part of the reason I think why guys like Kerr and Popovich have spoken as powerfully as they have about American politics and gun control and things like that is because they're more in touch with the mechanisms involved. I don't know how you would expect them to have a nuanced understanding of every possible world issue when, again, these are not diplomats. These are not ambassadors. Like These are basketball coaches. Why you want them to be vocal on every single issue, it's just not a reasonable expectation of a person. Yeah, uh, it's always tricky when we're looking to basketball coaches to be our political leaders. I mean, that's really why we elect political leaders. So I think that some of the pushback on them was just kind of bad faith. It was sort of trying to undercut the passion that they put forward on other issues uh, by taking personal swipes. The other thing I would say, too, and this is more mechanically, guys like Steve Kerr and Greg Popovich on a daily basis get asked to weigh in on a lot of topics, and they don't always bite. Uh, you know, they, they will brush off things if it's not the right moment, if the time is not right, if it's just not on their mind, if they don't happen to care about it. And as Steve Kerr said, if he just didn't feel educated about it. Now, most cases, if you're a media member and you get kind of a non-answer or a no comment uh, on that type of an issue, you don't tweet about it. You don't put the video up of it because it's not compelling. It's not interesting. This was just a case where the China story got so big that even the non-answer from Steve Kerr and Greg Popovich became news, right? So I do think that they were, you know, set up a little bit uh, in a tough situation where like, you know, they probably uh, had had internal conversations with their team about how they wanted to handle it. Uh, I'm sure that most teams around the league said, don't touch this with the 10 foot pole. Uh, They were most likely going along with that, or maybe they just, you know, personally didn't feel passionate about it. Uh, But they became part of the story because uh, the story had already blown up so much around them. So I think that, you know, that spotlight uh, made it seem uh, a little bit worse uh, than it actually was. And, you know, here's the other thing, too. And like, I've been kind of through the media ringer here the last couple of days doing various interviews on different platforms. And I'm not trying to take shots at anyone. uh, But, you know, there was a couple interviews where like, they're leading the story with Dennis Rodman tweeting that he can solve and negotiate (laughs) peace between China and the NBA, right? And so, when the media really latches onto a story, it can go to some really weird and not very helpful and a little bit, um, you know, disorienting places. And if I was someone who's as serious minded as Steve Kerr or Greg Popovich, I would be very careful before wading into that, right? Like if, unless I felt super passionately and driven about that issue, and I knew that everybody was swarming on this China topic for the next 72 hours and it was going to be leading every single show uh, on news ch- stations, NBA podcasts, you know, NBA shows, whatever. Uh, I would want to make sure I knew exactly what my take was. And if I didn't know, I would pass. And I think given this climate uh, that we're in, given the immediate environment, I think we should be accepting of coaches who make those kinds of choices or players who make those kinds of choices for that matter. No, absolutely. And maybe I'm burning some a good content idea here, but I feel like I can't wait to see the giant like chart of all of the different tentacles that this story has sprouted, all the different little side stories and reactions and forced reactions and no comments that became their own entire sagas. Like this is it's just such a strange time to be following the NBA. Yeah, and there's no doubt. I mean, it's just a strange time to be alive, frankly. Hey, mm. we got some great emails on this subject uh, from the Open Floor Globe. 
Uh, people emailed us from China, Chinese Americans, all sorts of different people with lots of knowledge. We're not going to be able to get through all of the takes, but I did want to have just a couple to mix in. They emailed us, by the way, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. I'm going to start with an email here from Stuart. He's in China. He said, um, look, Chinese public opinion, maybe you guys didn't quite get that right. Uh, he says the government has created a quote-unquote soft Stalinist state. Uh, as soon as Chi, uh, Chairman Xi took over, he conducted a massive political purge under the guise of an anti-corruption uh, crackdown. He uh, completed his information lockdown with a great firewall so no unregulated foreign media can be seen in China. No Google, no Facebook, no Twitter, no WhatsApp, no Instagram, nothing. The public is also under extreme surveillance through CCTV systems and total government control of Chinese social media platforms, which now integrate practically, practically every aspect of day-to-day -day life. So uh, what he, he concludes, the outrage and reaction from companies against the NBA is manufactured and driven by fear. However, if you speak to individual people here in China, you will get a range of views. And often they just don't have access to a different point of view than the government's. But as soon as you explain a topic to them, they quickly develop a more nuanced perspective. You would never be able to hear an unauthorized opinion other than in person because there simply is no way for it to be communicated. So I think that's some interesting context because when we were talking on Monday, I think I uh, you know, flippantly said, oh, Daryl Morey has offended all of China. And certainly I shouldn't have painted in, in that broad of a stroke. Um, and it is a very different just day-to-day -day living environment there in China in terms of access to information than what we're dealing with here in the United States. I think this was a really vital perspective. And, and to me, this is kind of what rang so false about Joe Tsai's comments and his statement is that, you know, 1.4 billion Chinese people don't stand united on anything. Like, I, I just refuse to believe that even if you account for certain cultural differences, that any government has the unanimous support of its people on any one subject. And you sure as hell can't just assume it in a place with that level of state control. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. For sure. Hey, Colby weighed in on a lighter subject. He says, can you imagine and appreciate the chaos that would have occurred if a reporter had been able to ask Kyrie Irving his opinion on the ongoing roller coaster between China and the NBA? I can only imagine the quotes we would have received. What do you think the worst possible thing Kyrie could have said or done and what would have been the consequences of his actions. All right, Colby, we see you trying to get us in trouble with some <laughs> politically incorrect <laughs> uh, requests here. We see you working, Colby. Uh, but this kind of goes back to my question. If, if I gave you a million dollars, you know, could you uh, cost your company a hundred million, Rob? What do you think? See, I don't think Kyrie would step in it that badly. I feel like he's the kind of person who, if he, if he really took aim for, you know, all the complexity of the situation between Hong Kong and China, he would just way overshoot it and end up just like riffing on the tyranny of borders in general, you know, like a, a we are all the children of the world kind of perspective. I feel like that's where Kyrie would be coming from. Yeah, I think that and also just the religious freedom thing that you mentioned on the, the last podcast, I think Kyrie would be all over that in terms of, uh, you know, some of the camps, the, the reported camps and uh, the persecution. You know, I could see Kyrie digging in really, really deeply. And frankly, um, I think the Kyries of the world maybe don't have a place in China, right? You know, I, I think that uh, he can be honest to a fault uh, in certain degrees. And I think he's even admitted that at times where, you know, he's said and done things, uh, you know, last year in Boston that were harmful to his team context. I think Colby raises a real point that if we 
did have unfettered media access to these guys, uh, you know, say before, during, and after, you know, that Nets-Lakers game, there is a chance that someone would have said something that could have made things a lot worse. And in some guy's case, they might have done so intentionally. And I think that's kind of one of my takeaways from this whole saga is once everybody's back in the United States, once the China tour is over, once uh, you know the regular season is starting to ramp up, once the media coverage of the NBA as a whole kicks up a notch, uh, I have no idea where this is going because someone is going to have a take here, right? Like someone prominent um, is going to feel like, uh, they need to weigh in, whether it's on behalf of the protesters, whether it's on behalf of uh, minority groups in China uh, or what have you. And we saw how China reacts to that. So I'm, I guess I'm just saying I'm on like fifth degree red alert at this point. Yeah, it's safe to say none of us have any idea where this is going, the full extent of it, especially, you know, even though it's not in China, but staring down another Olympic Games in Asia next year, where a lot of NBA players are going to be going there and you know, having to grapple, you know, even in any Olympics, there's, you know, the questions of like China and Chinese Taipei and how those things are represented. Now you have this whole other kind of bombshell to drop from a basketball perspective on the NBA and basketball players relationship with that particular nation in a massive international tournament. I can't imagine anything would possibly come up. (laughs) Right. Well, hey, look, let's move on to a lighter subject, which also happens to be one of my favorite subjects. That would be Zion Williamson. And I'm really curious to hear what you've you've thought about his first week uh, during the preseason because uh, I thought he had a promising debut game and then his second game where he's just going downhill basically at will, leading this huge comeback against the Chicago Bulls. It really had the internet going nuts about a basketball subject for once, and it was uh, you know so nice to see it you know kind of unfurl uh, on the court. Alex writes in to say, look, I don't have a question. I just wanted to say, when Zion caught the ball at the baseline, took one dribble, and did a 180 dunk off two feet, I had one thought. This dunk would be some player's best dunk of their entire career. And he's doing it in just his second game. I'm so ready for the Zion takeover, he writes. I'll be praying for a Zion versus Giannis finals in five years. Alex, I share your excitement. Rob, what did you think from... Uh, you know, Zion's near perfect offensive night against the Chicago Bulls. You know, it's been pretty awesome so far, especially as someone who doesn't watch much, if at all, college basketball. And, and my exposure to Zion at this point has mostly been kind of clips and, and chunks and sections of games. I don't think I've really sat down and watched kind of end to end a full Zion experience. And so to get a taste of that for the first time at NBA pace against NBA competition has been pretty exciting, especially from the perspective of you know, his ability to kind of navigate the seams of a defense already for a guy who's just a massive human being is so fun to watch. And it's really going to take, I think, a lot of time for NBA teams to get a bead on how he moves. And you see guys come into the league who they just have a, a unique way of navigating the floor. Like DeMarcus Cousins, I feel like, was kind of this way too when he came in. Just these kind of bigger players who are that nimble and that agile. It just, it takes a different kind of, it takes a defensive shift to be able to kind of calibrate to that. And so I think NBA teams are going to have to take some time to to really get a feel for how Zion is doing his thing. Because right now it looks like he's going to get a lot of layups, a lot of dunks. And with that kind of body control, he's, he's going to make a lot of them. No, I'm horrible at bowling. I mean, I'm just so bad at bowling. But like part of the problem is I throw the ball too hard. And Zion moving on the court reminds me of bowling, like myself bowling. <laughs> like he just flies through defenses. And you can see the Bulls players there was times they did not want it was Zion. They just didn't. They were moving out of the way. They were reaching. They were leaning. They're kind of swiping, you know, half-heartedly. And I'm interested to see, is that preseason defense? Is that just the Bulls being the Bulls? Or is that something we're going to see all season long? Like, are there going to be some grown men who look at Zion kind of coming downhill off some of those curls that the Pelicans have already done such a nice job of setting him up with? take one look at him and say, you know what? I'm not going to take a charge on this one. I don't want to get hit by that tank. Um, that That's one you know, initial impression. I also think, though, the reaction to the Chicago game, I think it was a little bit misguided. There was so much focus on, oh, look at his incredible field goal percentage. The guy's barely missing. He's doing so much damage around the basket. Look, Zion is not just an offensive player. This is a guy who we do not want to be judging by his scoring ability only. There are so many layers to his game. 
One thing I love about him is he plays hard, super, super hard, and he plays at a speed that a lot of guys don't get to regularly. Um, he does look a little bit in better shape, at least compared to summer league. So that's a good sign. Uh, he does put constant pressure, like you mentioned. Uh, that's a great sign. Uh, he draws a lot of attention too. I think he's going to be living at the foul line uh, one way or another. Defenses are just going to get themselves in spots where they feel like they have to foul him or he'll just kind of pressure them in ways they're not ready for and they'll have to you know, give up and concede those fouls. But he's also done a really nice job of, of being unselfish around the basket when the, the help comes. He's making the right pass. He doesn't necessarily have that crazy standout vision, but he knows where his teammates are, especially around the hoop, and he's very unselfish. You know, he's not forcing things through three defenders. He's willing to, you know, make that little wraparound pass to a big on the weak side who can finish it for a layup. It makes them as a team more fun to watch. And I think it's those little subtleties that get me excited about Zion. I just don't want it to pass by that you tried to sneak in here that you're like too strong to be a good bowler. No, 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 no. Look, I have very poor upper body strength. <laughs> there's no there's no doubt about that. I'm just saying that like there's a certain speed you're supposed to bowl at, right? And I don't bowl at that speed. I've been known to like, you know what that sound a bowling ball makes when it hits the lane, like the thud. That happens to me a lot when you just don't Ugh. do it quite right. I've definitely skipped a bowling ball over a bumper into somebody else's lane at one point. I don't bowl very much, okay? I'm just saying every mistake that you can make by throwing the ball too hard, having it like whiz into the back and just slam against the back wall behind the pins, making everyone think that you've broken the entire setup. I've done that before. Uh, it, it's not a matter of strength. It's a it's a, a lack of tact on my behalf. Well, whatever the equivalent is of throwing your ball over the gutter and into the next lane, let's hope Zion doesn't do that this year. No, and but that's a concern I've got too. I mean, and I think that this is something other commentators have mentioned in the past. He's putting a lot of pressure on his body every night. I mean, he only goes six speed, and I've compared him uh, in the past to a heat-seeking missile. Like, you know, some people would say, "Oh, he's trying to make the highlight play. He just tries to dunk every single time he's going after the rim." I don't think he's doing that for the audience's benefit. I think he's doing that because that's how his soul burns. Like, I think that he is just wired to go as hard as he possibly can to, you know, uh, wreak havoc. Uh, and I love it. I mean, it, there is shades of young Barkley, uh, you know, young Charles Barkley, the same way. I mean, Barkley used to take off in transition and, you know, he was trying to like end somebody's life once he crossed half court. And I get that vibe with uh, Zion. And I just think he's, you know, even more athletic and even more punishing uh, than almost anyone we've seen outside of maybe LeBron and, and a few other guys over the years. And that's, I mean, ultimately, I like Zion for everything he can do on the court, but more than anything, kind of what's inside of him. You know, that that motor is just so tantalizing. Absolutely. What's next? All right. Way too much gushing there for me. I'm sorry. I just cannot help it when the topic of Zion comes up. And I'm so excited that he's doing it right off the bat. We got another question here uh, from the Open Floor Globe. It's from Brandon. He writes, why in the heck did Toronto give Kyle Lowry a one-year, $31 million extension? He was expiring after this season, and now he's got an extra year. Won't that make him harder to trade? So, Rob, uh, what do you think? Masai Ujiri has made a, a lot of uh, moves that have been well-received by just about everybody. Uh, of course, the Kawhi Leonard trade worked out great. The Marcus All trade worked out for him. Uh, does this Kyle Lowry move stand out from the pack? Uh, do you think that this was a mistake? I just don't have any problem with giving one of the most important and beloved players in franchise history a one-year extension off of a championship year. Like, this is not a problem in my universe, um, especially when, you know, if we're talking about is he still tradable, how does this impact his potential trade value? Because the Raptors do have to think about that given the makeup of their roster. I just don't think it's necessarily a negative. If you look last year at say, Memphis's situation with, with Marcus Gasol. And, you know, you can't guarantee a team that he's going to be there for more than a few months because he had a player option. He could leave in the offseason, potentially. You can't make that guarantee, and thus you can't really demand much in exchange. And so I think teams would have kind of been in, on similar footing with Kyle in some ways. And so the ability to say, hey, you have him for an extra year locked up. We did right by our player. We're showing our city that we're doing right by the guy who helped bring them a title. This, this seems like a win-win to me. Yeah, I think, you know, to answer Brandon's question about why they do it, 
I think it gives them a level of stability during a transition period that they wouldn't have had otherwise. There's no doubt that trade rumors, distractions, all that stuff could kick in if they start slow, if they really just don't have any way to replace Kawhi Leonard, if you know all of the positive vibes from last year start to go south. Um, that would have defined their season. You know, the fact that Lowry's on an expiring contract, that there's a bunch of contenders out there who would be interested in plugging him in, um, you know, like Milwaukee. I mean, how much would they kill to upgrade from Bledsoe to a Kyle Lowry? Miami, they would definitely take a, a chance on him, feeling like they can move up in that playoff picture. Um, Orlando, I mean, when was the last time they had a point guard as good as Kyle Lowry? Been a long, long time, right? So I think that. For Toronto, the benefit of doing this deal is that you punt all of that stuff. You know, you don't have to worry about Lowry, who has been a powder and a little bit of a you know a live wire in the past uh, at various points of his career. You don't have to worry about souring that goodwill. Uh, he's still got some game left. There's no doubt about it. I, th- I worry about the miles adding up. I worry about the smaller injuries adding up for him. I worry about what does it look like if he tries to step forward and regain some of that usage that went Kawhi's way last year? Uh, Is he still going to be able to do it? I thought he had a very good year last year, not a great year. Um, And I do think that he's starting to get into that point of his career where, um, you know, it's going to be on that Chris Paul trajectory, right? Like he's maybe a year or two behind Chris on the on the age curve, but they're going to be headed, you know, kind of the same direction. Now, that doesn't mean you write them off forever. Um. But I also think it does justify this idea of, okay, a one-year extension um, is kind of splitting the difference, right? You're still hedged a little bit against age-related decline from him while also giving yourself a level of stability um, you know, as you proceed here in the short term. And I also think when you're trying to build your future around a guy like Pascal Siakam, you need a legit point guard to do that. You know, I mean, Siakam is not going to be a big-time playmaker for his teammates. Uh, he's got to show that he can handle... Uh, a significantly increased offensive role, maintaining his efficiency in that standard. And, uh, you know, guys like that really benefit from playing with experienced, smart point guards, especially point guards who can shoot. And that's what Lowry is. So to me, I think it's a win from the organization standpoint. It's a win from Siakam's standpoint. It's definitely a win from uh, Lowry's standpoint. And I think the trade value thing for where they are as an organization, I think that's a, a lower priority. Well, I just think he can still help so many teams. And this is something that I kind of ran into in understanding his place in the top 100 was if you are a team with a superstar player, Kyle Lowry is kind of the point guard you want next to them. He has that perfect combination of skill, of talent, of deference, of hustle. He plays defense. He knows how to get out of the way and still be really effective. Like he's the kind of point guard you want to elevate a good team to a great team. For sure. Hey, here's another question. Uh, about point guards and contracts and and big picture uh, discussions. Peter, who is quickly becoming an open floor globe MVP with some of these questions that he's sending in, he writes, I remember years ago when Drew Holiday signed his large extension, the popular take was it was an overpay for a chronically injured point guard who was in the second tier. But since then, Holiday has outplayed Damian Lillard in a playoff series mostly avoided big injuries, and set several career highs across the board statistically. Additionally, the Supermax has redefined our concept of a bad contract, so his doesn't look quite as bad by comparison. Is there a next Drew Holiday in this discussion? Somebody who was initially criticized for how much money he got on his deal, but then uh, proceeded to produce at or above the level of his salary. What do you think, Rob? Anybody that jumps out uh, to your mind? The only one I could really think of was maybe Otto Porter, who I want to say, was that a, a an offer sheet from the Brooklyn Nets that he signed? It was like four years, uh, I, I think 106 or $107 million, and has seemed pretty weighty at, at certain points in, his, in the life of that contract so far. But based on what we saw in Chicago, based on the prospects of kind of getting out from the mire of the Wizards and getting some distance from that, I think he could be a really good player in, in kind of in that holiday milieu in terms of guys who could all of a sudden their contracts start to look pretty good given their level of production yeah that's a good that's a good uh example for sure i mean it's like would you rather have his number and his game or wiggins's number and wiggins's game right i think that probably the porter deal got more criticism at the time than the wiggins deal but i think 
in hindsight, most people would take Porter on his number and Wiggins on his number. And you look, Washington was able to trade Porter uh, as something of an asset. And I think it would be difficult to trade Wiggins uh, at this point, uh, just given how his game is plateaued. Now, the team that popped up to my mind uh, with this question, though, Rob, was actually the team in your neck of the woods because the Golden State Warriors gave out a ton of money this year. Clay Thompson got a big contract. Draymond Green got a big contract. D'Angelo Russell got a big contract. And I don't know how much grief those individual moves took, but I think they deserve at least some skepticism, right? Uh, You know, with Draymond, it would be a matter of his age and physically, is he going to hold up? With Clay, it's the fact that, you know, he's got a serious long-term injury that could wipe him out for the whole first year. So you're, you're not getting a ton of um, you know, of production there. And with D'Angelo, there's the fit question, but there's also the, is he really an all-star question? You know, he was an all-star with an asterisk uh, in the Eastern Conference, you know, the Sunset Conference. Um, what's he going to look like when he moves over to the Sunrise Conference in the West? And is he going to fit with Steph? Does he have to get traded, um, you know, to a different team so he can really, you know, flourish? Uh, and what's his ceiling? I think all of those guys deserve some level of questions. I'm curious, do you think that that group will will make those deals look good or is there any backfire potential with those guys? Well, I think contextually, they were kind of all deals that to some extent the Warriors had to make to preserve the stability of their franchise right now, who, again, when Clay comes back, a team that's still poised to be pretty good for, you know, in the interim. And then in D'Angelo's case, try, just trying to recoup some value for Kevin Durant leaving. Something that you can either, you know, the Warriors are, are putting on a brave face right now and saying, look, we really want to keep D'Angelo and develop him. He's an important part of our team. Whether you believe that or not, he's either an important part of their team or an important part of their kind of trade future. And so to get that kind of player at the value that they did, yes, it's a big contract, but I feel like it's a pretty movable one, don't you think? Uh, it's movable, but, uh, you know, I think that, he has a chance to be the next holiday here, right? Like, I think that to me, he's not a max level player based on last season. Uh, To me, he's not a max level guy for as many years as they gave him, even based on his current projected potential. He just hasn't shown enough defensively. He's a mess offensively. Doesn't get to the free throw line. Doesn't get to the rim. Uh, I don't love his shot selection. I think he's streaky at, at certain times. I think he can be a more effective uh, distributor and uh, you know team-oriented guard. He's got some really nice vision and passing. It doesn't always translate in big moments. Um, I do, of course, you know, love his you know, three-point shooting potential. But does that profile add up to the kind of deal that they gave him, where it's 27 this year, 28 next year, 30 and 31? To me, it doesn't. To me, it's in that Drew Holiday category of like this guy has to go out there and prove that he can earn it. But it's possible. I mean, I'm not saying he can't do it. Um, but I do think, uh, you know, he deserves to kind of be questioned, you know, some other deals maybe from this summer that might have gotten scrutiny. What about like a Jimmy Butler for Miami, you know, 32 this year, 34, 36, 37. I think some people in Philadelphia were breathing a sigh of relief that they weren't put on the hook for that contract. Um, but you look at the situation of Miami, is that deal necessarily going to look terrible in two years if, if he leads them to the playoffs like he's capable of doing if he continues to put up you know big numbers and kind of an alpha role like is that one where maybe he could be the next holiday i think that's one where the the public opinion or the popular opinion would just be that the last years of that deal are going to be tough i think there's less holiday potential there because he would have to stay very healthy in a way that he just hasn't over the course of his career i'm a big believer in jimmy butler as a player even given all of the noise and extracurricular stuff that kind of circles around him. But even from an availability standpoint, which I've been told is the most important ability, and then also just the age curve of his career, I think he's more likely to be in what we thought Drew Holiday might be than what Drew has turned out to be. Another one that is in this Drew or not Drew uh, you know, uh, dichotomy is Blake Griffin, right? Because Everyone was wringing their hands about his contract. I thought when he when he first got in, especially when he got injured in that first year with the Clippers, um, I didn't hear a lot of people freaking out about his contract last year in Detroit when he's playing all NBA level basketball. And yet, there's still three years left if you include his player option. So there's time for it to swing back the other direction. Uh, what do you think on Blake? I mean, uh, is he going to be you know justified and have his kind of day in the sun? 
or was this a, an interlude here where he had reasonably good health last year and he was able to get his critics off his back? I mean, that's the commonality with all these cases, right? Is guys like Drew who, I think Drew's case is a little different just because his injuries were pretty disparate. You know, other than the stress reaction and those related injuries, he had just kind of some random stuff happen versus Blake's is a little more chronic, which obviously makes it a little more concerning. His situation is is so strange given, you know, you mentioned his contract, you know, given to him by the Clippers and then subsequently traded. It's the the story of the Clippers and the exclusion of the fact that they just like signed Blake and then traded him away very quickly. It, it's it's curious the way that that's kind of omitted from the larger story of how they landed guys like Kawhi and Paul George because they do have a great culture. I think they've really built around the right kinds of people in terms of their locker room and, and rallying around you know the Pat Beverleys and the Montrezl Harrells and the Lou Williamses of the world. I think that was a smart decision and, and you know broadly more culturally looking for that kind of worker mentality is smart. But kind of the fact that Blake was kind of the sacrificial lamb of that is kind of an interesting wrinkle, I feel like. No, I mean, they definitely did Blake dirty. <laughs> There's no question. They made the right move, so I I don't necessarily kill them for that, but uh, he was, you know, certainly their success came at his expense. Can I tell you who is not going to be the next Drew Holiday? Please. Harrison Barnes. I mean, no chance. Yikes. That contract, I mean, come on, man. Like, they gave him so much money, and I mean... I wonder what they were thinking, uh, the Sacramento Kings, during the FIBA World Cup. You know what I mean? Where it's like, Harrison Barnes is out there being Harrison Barnes, and you know, thank goodness that you locked him up for whatever it was, like four years and eighty million dollars, something along those lines. Um, I, I just that—that's one where I think we know exactly who he is. I don't see him outdueling Damian Lillard in a playoff series anytime soon. I think it's fair to wonder what the Sacramento Kings are thinking in a lot of instances. I don't even mean that to, in a way where I'm trying to take a shot at them. Like their roster is just so loaded with usable NBA players who they're going to have to find room for and minutes for and opportunity and shots for. And now you're, you know you're obviously bringing back Harrison Barnes. You want him to be a part of that. It's it's just so crowded there at a time where I feel like you want to give De'Aaron Fox and Marvin Bagley like as much elbow room and growth room as possible. And yet things, do, they do feel like the walls are closing in a little bit in terms of just how much opportunity everybody's going to get there. Last candidate for Drew Holiday or not Drew Holiday. What about Terry Rozier? Everyone hated that contract this summer. Uh, I think it was like, you know, three years, uh, almost $60 million, maybe $57 million, which seemed like probably triple what he was worth. Um, I'm not sure if you saw their preseason uh, box score the other night. He had like 18 points when I looked, and I think all of his teammates had combined for like six points. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but it was as depressing as you imagine the Hornets would be. Um, is there any way that Terry Rozier emerges from the ashes of the Charlotte Hornets rebuild and winds up looking like a better value, leading them on a playoff push like two years from now? What do you think? Ben, I'd like to congratulate you on becoming Terry Rozier's agent. I know it's been a long time coming. I'm, I'm sure those percentage points are going to do you well. I just I just want to congratulate you. No, I, I'm not advocating for it. I'm just, you know, we're trying to tap the most paid contracts here who could potentially turn their careers around and shock everybody. What you're saying is there's no shot? I would be, I, to, to, uh, to borrow your word, I would indeed be shocked. Got it. We got one final question here. It's from Mark, and he writes, Ben... As a chess player, national master, and 2017 North Carolina chess champion, I beg of you to do more research before you drop another chess analogy on the pod. All right, Mark. First of all, Anthony Davis is the pawn. Okay, that was a good chess analogy. I didn't see you <laughs> counter. I believe a chess term would be counter. I don't see you countering with a different piece. So come on, Mark, step it up, or I'm going to have to take away your North Carolina title. Mark writes... On the subjects of the Hornets, he goes, I'm a diehard Hornets fan ever since the Bobcats came to Charlotte, and I have been a little bit upset at the dismissive attitude of sports journalists towards the Hornets. Wasn't getting rid of Kemba a great move for rebuilding? Do we not have promising prospects in Bridges, Washington, and Monk? And then he goes in parentheses, okay, maybe not Monk. Why are people saying we have absolutely no prospects for the future? Don't we have some good draft picks coming our way for the next year or maybe the next seven years? I would say a team like Orlando is worse off than the Hornets. They are just like the Bobcats team that lost to the Heat in four games in 2014. 
So I guess his argument is you don't want to be trapped in the middle. You'd rather be full rebuilding than halfway rebuilding. Maybe Kemba wasn't worth all the money from a long-term perspective if you don't have enough pieces around him and you're playing for the future. This is Mark's uh, argument. Are you buying or selling what our favorite chess champion of North Carolina has to say, Rob? Well, let me just say first, I take it as a matter of course that you're going to agitate certain fan bases around the league. I was not expecting big chess to come after you today. <laughs> Perfect. Well, look, uh, I can poke and prod with the best of them, Rob. What can I say? <laughs> it's true. But I mean, as far as the Hornets go, I, I mean, I would agree generally that yes, losing your best player is a great tanking strategy. I think the problem with the Hornets is, you know, you look at their roster and like, let's take a look at those three young guys he described, Miles Bridges, no, Malik. No, Mark. you... you you just said it. The problem with the Hornets is you look at their roster. I mean, that, <laughs> that, that, that's basically, I mean, hey, sorry, uh, I don't know if I'm using another chest uh, phrase out of term here, but I think the phrase is checkmate. I think that's what you're looking for. Yikes. Um, but even if you look at anyone on the roster, I mean, the question is how many players in that roster are good starters, high quality starters, or could become high quality starters? That number is very low. And, you know, the issue, I think, more broadly is not that they you know, let Kemba go or didn't resign him or didn't want to pay him whatever figure they didn't want to pay him. It's that they chose not to trade him because they wanted to host the All-Star game and have him there for it. And then they, when he left, they used the fact that they didn't think he was going to get the Supermax as some kind of cover and then went on to sign Terry Rozier at almost $60 million. So like that sequence of events is not a good sign. Yeah, I think it comes down to faith in the front office, faith in ownership. And I mean, look, I'm the biggest Mike Stan there is. I proved it by traveling to his high school and going to the local gym and the museum in Wilmington, finding his outdoor park uh, in Wilmington and, you know, photo documenting it in the, you know, February cold, beautiful town. But even somebody with, you know, Mike tinted glasses like myself can't look at his ownership, you know, track record in Charlotte and have any reason for hope. And it's the same deal with Cupcheck being in charge there. What's the direction? Like you said, the whole Kemba saga didn't really make sense. If you were ready to move on from him and rebuild, you have to trade him earlier. Um, if you don't trade him, you have to be prepared to at least consider the possibility of offering him the Supermax. Um, and, you know, overpaying as Terry, for Terry Rozier as your backup strategy, uh, to me, that's a rough look. And I don't like really any of their prospects. I'm not sure which one of these guys is going to pop. And again, it's it's not intended as like Hornets specific hate. It's just that we didn't really see much from Monk last year. Bridges to me is fine. I, you know, I don't see star potential there. Uh, same deal with PJ Washington. And they've got so many veterans who are going to be eating minutes just because they've been sitting around and they're going to be expecting to play. And that's just kind of how the NBA works. And at some point, you know, the coaching staff is going to feel an obligation to put, you know, as respectable of a product on the court as you can, that it's just going to be really depressing to watch these guys. I don't feel a lot of young, exciting pop, uh, you know, from this group. So that's really bleak. I don't know what the reason for hope is in Charlotte right now. I mean, to me, this is a team that needs a number one pick in the draft lottery, right? Like it feels a lot like the Pelicans where they're being strung along by Anthony Davis and they just need that shot of adrenaline to kind of save them, you know, that, that miracle, uh, you know, to come down and, and change their franchise's trajectory, similar to like the Washington Wizards getting John Wall at a, a time when they really needed it, when they were just depressing and in the dumps and dealing with the Gilbert Arenas thing. I mean, they just need something to just shake this thing and, and completely change uh, their direction as a franchise. And, if they just keep going forward with the same decision makers, I have no reason to believe it's going to be different. So, uh, it yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to come up with a chess analogy. It's like your deep blue <laughs> computer, you know, come maybe on. has a glitch. It has a glitch in the software, and you just keep running that deep blue out there, and it just keeps dropping games left and right, left and right, left and right. Maybe matches. Maybe I'm supposed to say matches. Um, but yeah, you got to get a software update, and I think that involves <laughs> Michael Jordan deciding to get serious about ownership. And I think Mitch Kupchak's best days are behind him. I think that's the polite way to put it. The other part of that, too, is I think we talk about tanking so much and what it can do for a franchise. And I think it can get you to a very positive place, but it takes a long time. Like you, you were talking about an upcoming season that's going to be pretty dire. 
after which maybe the Hornets get a good draft pick, after which maybe they develop that pick and that player turns out into the player they think he's going to be, after which maybe they then go on to you know figure out a second or a third piece by trade or by getting another draft pick. Like This is an extended process, and the Hornets haven't even effectively started it yet because they don't ha- yet have the pick that's going to become the player they want to build around. Yeah, I think he might want to just dive deeper into his chess hobby rather than watching the Hornets for like the next two or three years. I think that's our big takeaway here. Um, Rob, good news. You survived another podcast as co-host. I really appreciate uh, you bringing so much to the table on today's episode. And I just want to give a quick follow-up to uh, the last episode, my State of the Union address and, and everything else like that. We were absolutely overwhelmed inundated, deluged by email feedback from the Open Floor Globe. I think we got more than 1,500 emails in support of Andrew Sharp. It was an unbelievable outpouring of support. All day long on Tuesday, my Gmail was even struggling to load all the emails, so it was fantastic. I also want to say thank you to everyone who made a point to say, uh, we're glad the show is continuing on. You know, that means a lot to me. I'm sure it means a lot to Rob as well. We're doing everything we can during this transition uh, process to bring you a high quality basketball pro- uh, podcast. And we promise to continue doing that. Uh, and so thanks so much for sticking with us. Thanks so much for reaching out and, and touching Andrew. Hopefully you guys saw his Instagram. He actually had a good Instagram for once where he put up just a sampling of all the emails that people sent in. So that's the kind of impact and power you guys have as a globe. You can make Andrew a hopeless Instagram user into a good Instagram user. I thought it was impossible. So congratulations for doing that. Now, if you want to continue to interact with uh, the show, please email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail.com at gmail.com. The season is right around the corner, so get all those season preview questions in. As Rob mentioned, the SI Preview Magazine is coming out shortly. I'm sure we're going to dig into the scouting profiles, his cover stories, all the other good stuff. Uh, So that will be on deck for next week. Uh, Also, we are on Apple Podcasts. You can find our page by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. Once you get there, scroll down. There's a section that says rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the world. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golver. Now, Rob refuses to plug his, so I'm not even going to mention it. But hey, Rob, until next week, I will talk to you.